From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Obama sets an ambitious new goal. Federal agencies will use 20% renewable power by 2020. Also, remembering one of America's biggest environmental horror stories. Our little Julie was stillborn. The loss of our child may be a direct result to the chemicals. You are murderers. Each and every one of you in this room are murderers. 35 years ago, Love Canal sparked a public revolt over toxic dumping. We had chemicals in our house, in our air, in our backyard, in our school, everywhere. 56% of our children were born with birth defects. Three ears, double rows of teeth, extra fingers, extra toes, and they said that they were going to do nothing. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The U.S. government is a big customer and can boost businesses. And that's what's behind President Obama's executive order that requires at least 20% of the power federal departments use to come from renewable sources by the year 2020. John Powers of the White House says each agency can choose how it wants to comply. We've given the agencies the flexibility to achieve this goal in a variety of ways. To try to take advantage of on-site renewable energy projects. For instance, can they do rooftop solar? Or the VA hospitals, for instance, are doing really interesting work putting solar panels over their parking lots in arrays that both provide shade to the folks parking there and also provide power to the hospitals. Another option for the agencies is to contract with a local energy project that's being developed. And what this does is it helps that energy project get the support it needs to move forward and come online. And then, of course, they can always go onto the open market and buy both green power or voluntary recs. But the intent of this is to help drive more renewable energy in this country. And we want to help agencies achieve that broader intent with their initiatives. By the way, what's the outstanding agency at this point? Uh, you know what? It's hard to say. So a lot of the agencies have taken different approaches. You have EPA, who's done, and the Environmental Protection Agency has done incredible work, uh, you know, with their renewable electricity. Then you have, like, the Defense Department. The Defense Department is working on doing large-scale, utility-scale renewable energy projects on their land, some, for instance, on old landfills, where they're committing to buying the power off of those projects. Now, how significant uh, will this be in terms of savings? I'm thinking of both emissions and costs. Well, so this helps towards the broader emissions goal the president's given the federal government, where we have a goal of 28% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2020. And we're on track to meet that goal. And when we meet that goal, we'll have saved over $11 billion in energy costs. John Powers of the White House Council on Environmental Quality. Now, President Obama's order to increase the federal use of renewable energy brings us to another installment in our series, Power Shift, about the transition in Massachusetts to low-carbon energy. For the third year in a row, the Bay State has won top honors for energy efficiency. Mark Sylvia, Commissioner of the State's Department of Energy, joins us to explain. Thanks for stopping by, Commissioner. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. 
So for the third year running, Massachusetts has topped the American Council for Energy Efficiency rankings as the most energy efficient state in the nation, in America. What is Massachusetts doing to keep winning this award year after year? Well, we're very proud of uh, our number one ranking, and for three years in a row, it is a real testament to the focus that Massachusetts places on energy efficiency. There are a number of reasons why Massachusetts has been ranked number one. Most notably is our energy efficiency programs that we provide to residences and businesses. A lot of people attribute Massachusetts' success to something called the Green Communities Act. Can you describe that legislation for me, please? Sure. So uh, the Green Communities Act was signed into um, action by the governor back in 2008. Uh, It was really a landmark piece of legislation that did a number of things, one of which was to mandate that the utilities needed to provide all cost-effective energy efficiency before buying additional generation to sell to their customers. That's significant. At the same time that it placed that requirement, on utilities and really made energy efficiency our first fuel. Um, It also required the utilities to work together to develop energy efficiency programs for all of their customers that are consistent across the state. And what about public investment? What did the state put into this? So you and I as ratepayers pay a systems benefit charge. So some of the funding for our efficiency programs come through what we pay in our utility bill. Uh, But in addition, Massachusetts is part of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is a nine-state carbon cap-and-trade program. And the proceeds that Massachusetts receives from participating in that program also go to fund the energy efficiency programs. So there are a number of funding sources, which is important, because then that enables the resident or business to actually take advantage of dollars that they put into the system. Quantify this for me. Just how efficient is Massachusetts? Well, I mean, as as ACCEE has indicated, we're the most efficient. So to give you kind of some perspective on that, from 2010 to 2012, which was the first three years of these plans that we've uh, put in place, the Commonwealth invested $1.6 billion towards energy efficiency. And that actually yielded $5.5 billion in benefits, or is estimated to yield $5.5 billion in benefits. What kind of benefits? Well, reduction in energy costs, also reduction uh, in energy consumption, as well as things like jobs that have been created. Um, So there are a number of benefits that accrue to the homeowner or the business as a result of energy efficiency. Why is Massachusetts making energy efficiency such a high priority? So, you know, when the governor came into office in 2007, And certainly when he campaigned for governor, one of the things that he saw that concerned him was that the Northeast has very high energy costs. And the governor felt strongly that we needed to change that dynamic. And so, you know, he and his team got to work right away, identifying those strategies that would help us to deal with the high cost of energy, our dependence on fossil fuels, and energy really that comes from outside of Massachusetts. You know, we're at the end of the energy pipeline in the Northeast. We don't have a lot of indigenous fuels um, that we can take advantage of. And the governor said we need to have a fundamental shift in how we tackle energy issues. The Green Communities Act that you asked me about earlier was really the result of that vision. So there was the Green Communities Act and the Global Warming Solutions Act, which is another piece of landmark legislation that the governor signed, which really ultimately set the most ambitious greenhouse gas reduction goals of any state in our country. So, of course, no matter how efficient you get, you still have to get electrons. You've got to get electricity from someplace. Um, 
What about alternative energy? How's Massachusetts doing with that? You know, like with energy efficiency, uh, Massachusetts also is a a leader on uh, renewable energy from regardless of the technology. We have a very successful renewable portfolio standard, uh, which supports the development of technologies like wind and solar. Just to give you an example on the solar front, the governor set a goal in 2007 that we install 250 megawatts of solar PV by the year 2017. Well, this year, in 2013, in May, we hit that goal four years early. And the governor said, well, we need to focus now on a new goal and set a goal of 1,600 megawatts by the year 2020. So solar PV has been a great success. And as you know, there's also a great potential for offshore wind in Massachusetts and all up and down the East Coast. And Cape Wind is one example, certainly here in Massachusetts. Um, President Obama said that he wants to have 20% of the electricity that the federal government buys be renewable by the year 2020, 20% by 2020. How does the Massachusetts government stack up compared to that goal? So we're in alignment with the president's goal. Uh, We have the renewable portfolio standard, as I mentioned. So what that means is that utilities are required to have a certain percentage of their energy that they sell to their customers come from renewable energy resources. So as of uh, 2013, that represents 8% in class one. So that's a combination of wind and solar. And each year, we increase that percentage by one. So next year, it'll be 9%. The year after that will be 10%. The year after that will be 11% and so on and so forth. So what you're saying is that the state is going to get this same 20% renewable, that is, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts buying electricity to light the state house or the courthouse because overall the state's renewable portfolio is going to be that big. Yes. Very ambitious. Well, and we think it's, uh, it is ambitious, but it's achievable. Mark Sylvia is the commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Energy Resources. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. It is perhaps ironic that the most ambitious green energy development in Massachusetts seems dead in the water. Cape Wind is a project to erect 130 wind turbines, the height of office towers, smack in the middle of scenic Nantucket Sound that has faced more than a decade of opposition. Still, Cape Wind's won federal approval, but the developers are still struggling with financing, and a vital federal tax credit is stuck in the doldrums. To bring us up to date, we turn to Beth Daly of the New England Center for Investigative Reporting, who's covered Cape Wind extensively. Welcome to Living on Earth. Oh, thanks for having me, Steve. So first, let's talk about this tax credit for wind energy. What is this tax credit, and why does it feel like every year the thing comes down to the wire? Because it does. I mean, (laughs) every year the wind industry and a heck of a lot of people have tried to convince Congress that we need to keep these tax credits in perpetuity, that they shouldn't expire every year. And the tax credits, just to remind you, basically gives a percentage back in real dollars to the project developers for developing renewable or clean energy. But Congress has been really reluctant to keep that authorized year after year, and it's become a bit of a political football every year. The Republicans and others have said, look, these tax credits are basically just a handout to get expensive energy projects built. And we don't think that's the way it should go. It should be basically whatever cheap energy we can get, we should go. The Obama administration and supporters say, well, No, actually, we think that clean energy to fight climate change is critical. And what's more, you know, the coal and oil industry have long received similar subsidies that are maybe difficult to see, but they're embedded in basically their business every day. 
Let's look now at the offshore project in Massachusetts. It's called Cape Wind. Where are we at with our project today? Well, Cape Wind, for anyone who has not been around for the last 13 years in New England, uh, came on the scene in 2001 as the nation's first proposed offshore wind farms. It was going to be 130 turbines in federal waters in Nantucket Sound, a very beloved place to a lot of very powerful people who did not want the turbines built. Many of them supported wind energy, but they didn't want the turbines in Nantucket Sound. They argued it would impede navigation, impede um, aesthetics, and basically Cape Wind should go someplace else or wait till the technology allows them to go farther offshore. That, that controversy continues to simmer, but Cape Wind, after 13 years, has gotten virtually every federal approval it needs to build they sold the power. They've overcome lawsuits after lawsuits, although there are some still pending. But the biggest thing facing them, I think most specialists would agree right now, is the fact that they need to come up with investors who want to invest in Cape Wind. And the fact of the matter is Cape Wind is an expensive investment because while they have sold a lot of their power to utilities, it's very expensive power. And what about the tax credit? How important is the tax credit for a project like Cape Wind? Cape Wind says they will go forward no matter what, tax credit or not tax credit, but specialists really say that that tax credit is super, super important to them. It's hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a lot of money to absorb by yourself. And what does Cape Wind need to do to qualify for the federal tax credit? They need to start construction by the end of this year. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean putting turbines in the water. It means have they expended enough money to satisfy the public government, that they basically are starting construction. I spoke to Cape Wind recently, and they were very confident, but also externally close to the vest, on whether or not they would meet the criteria to get that tax credit. I pressed them, and they said, well, it'd be great if we get it, but we're going to move forward anyway if we don't. But I think from the outsider's view, if they don't get that tax credit, the project's viability is definitely in question. So what do you see the chances are that Cape Wind makes it? You know, that's a really good question. Cape Wind is this amazing, uh, they persevere, and it's largely due to the developer behind it, Jim Gordon. Um, he's a very tenacious man who's spent tens and tens of millions of dollars, if not more, working to get the nation's first offshore wind farm in place. It's really almost coming down to personality in some ways, because it would be easy to walk away, but it's pretty clear he's not going anywhere. Now, when Cape Wind was first proposed, it was one of the only offshore wind projects out there in the U.S. What about now? Yeah, so there's lots of, lots of, lots of offshore wind being proposed. Um, New Jersey, there's a project off Rhode Island, a demo project. There's even off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, a large area that's opening up to wind farm development. Cape Wind wants to be the nation's first offshore wind farm, but I think there's a growing sentiment out there, I think, that as technology improves and wind farms go farther offshore to escape the aesthetic issue, which Cape Wind was so mired in, that people just didn't like the way it looked in this very, you know, sacred place of Nantucket Sound. The question is raised, like, is Cape Wind needed still, you know, in Nantucket Sound? Maybe we should build our wind farms 12 miles offshore, and that'll be better because no one will see it. But there still seems to be a very strong sentiment that Cape Wind really is a symbolic green step for America. And a lot of people have a lot of, pol a lot of political stake in it. Beth Daly is a reporter for the New England Center for Investigative Reporting. Thanks so much, Beth, for taking the time. No problem. Thanks for having me. 
Coming up, a different spin on the power of wind turbines. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time now to delve into stories from beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra, publisher of Environmental Health News and thedailyclimate.org. He's on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. Hey, and I understand, Peter, this week you've got a couple of classic political contradictions to share with us. Well, here's one for you. We've got Republicans in Washington trying to protect wildlife, while Democrats are defending the issuing of permits to kill it. Hmm. Conservatives wanting to do conservation, huh? Yeah, and and there's a history of that in the Republican Party. If you go back far enough, Richard Nixon founded the EPA. He signed the Endangered Species Act. Teddy Roosevelt is considered the greatest environmental president of all time, and that was a century ago. But now we're talking about eagles, and including bald eagles, the national symbol, recently recovered from the endangered species list. And and what's happening is that the Obama administration is issuing 30-year exemptions for wind farms in the event that they kill eagles with wind turbines. There won't be any penalties. The main ally for environmental groups in this, the senator who's speaking up, is a Republican named David Vitter. Environmentalists allied with a senator with a 4% lifetime score from the League of Conservation Voters. The Obama administration had gone after wind farms that killed eagles before. There was a million-dollar settlement just last month. That apparently is not going to happen anymore. So, Peter, how bad a problem is this, really? Well, nobody really has a firm number on how many eagles have died in wind turbines. There's one study that says it may be as few as 100. It could be more than that. Now, as I understand it, there's another study that looks at the death of bats and estimates them at 600,000 a year. So there's still a problem with wind farms and wildlife, right? There's absolutely a concern. The wind industry says they're working on it. Their supporters, mostly Democrats, are asking for regulatory relief. That's what Republicans usually do. And then the Republicans are left protecting wildlife. That's what Democrats normally do. And it leaves a very tight situation for the Democrats because it appears that they're throwing eagles under the bus. Or onto the blades, one might say. There you go. Now, what about this climate skeptic governor who's made an unusual turnaround, Peter? Governor Paul LePage of the state of Maine, you might say, he's a plain-spoken and kind of colorful character. Uh, When he ran for office three years ago, he said that climate change was a scam, and the scam was designed to make people like Al Gore rich. But there's a Charles Dickens turnaround happening with Governor Paul LePage of Maine, because he said not only that climate change was real, but that climate change for the state of Maine might be awesome. If it makes seaports busier and more prosperous when the Arctic ice melts and more ships come to call in Maine seaports. The Holy Grail of the Northeast Passage, huh? But I don't think you're working up to a Charles Dickens happy ending here. No, I don't think that's in the cards. Uh, One of the problems is the standard political problem of bad timing. While the governor was having his epiphany on climate change, there was a very iconic main industry that was shutting down, possibly because of climate change. There's a shrimp fleet that works the winters. It brings in small, very tasty shrimp that are shipped around the world. And that fleet has to shut down because the shrimp population has crashed. One of the reasons is that waters are getting warmer. They're going to close it for at least a year, putting about 100 boats out of business, maybe longer than that, to build the shrimp population back up. Meanwhile, Peter, is the governor getting any backup of his rosy view of climate change? The only backup I've seen is the snarky kind. Uh, There's a columnist for the Portland Press Herald named Bill Nemitz, Very, very cynical moment in a piece he wrote last week. He got even rosier than the governor. He said that one of the other possibilities for Maine cashing in on climate change is in the tourism trade where snowboarding could be replaced by mudboarding. 
Okay, Peter, take us back for a moment to the calendar and history this week. Uh, I think you have the anniversary of, uh, well, a remarkable environmental protest. That's right. 14 years ago this week, Julia Butterfly Hill came down from the place she'd lived for two years. And that place was 180 feet up in a redwood tree. She built a couple platforms, lived there for two years, just outside the town of Stafford, California. She named the tree Luna. And she finally came down 14 years ago this week when the logging company promised they'd spare that tree and all the trees nearby. And whatever happened to Julia and Luna? Let's start with Luna. Luna's still there. There was a murder attempt on the tree uh, about a year after Julia came down. This is a very emotional issue in logging country. And some vandals tried to cut that tree down. They got about halfway through it. The tree had to be saved and stabilized. It's apparently doing okay now. Julia Butterfly Hill is still public speaking and blogging and getting arrested every once in a while. The town of Stafford, near her protest site, has had a problem with mudslides, and that may be because of the logging, or it may be because of the logging roads that were built. It is hard to imagine, though, two years of one's life completely devoted to a single act of civil disobedience. I guess sometimes you take a stand by sitting down. Peter Dykstra is the publisher of the Environmental Health News and the Daily Climate. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks a lot, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. The largest coal terminal in North America could be built on the coast of Washington State at a place called Cherry Point. But the site of the possible export terminal is also a sacred place for the Lummi tribe, whose reservation is nearby. And the waters surrounding Cherry Point are home to the Lummi's tribal fishing industry worth millions of dollars. Thanks to a landmark legal decision affirming treaty rights in the 1970s, tribes have a say on proposed projects that could impact their fishing grounds. Ashley Ahern from the public media collaborative EarthFix has the second part of our series, Coal or Culture. Seagulls circle around the god soldier as Jay Julius and his crew pull crab pots up out of the deep blue waters near Cherry Point. From massive buckets on deck comes the clack and rustle of delicious Dungeness crabs in futile attempts at escape. We're just a few minutes boat ride from the Lummi Reservation north of Bellingham. That's not bad. Jay Julius is a member of the Lummi Tribal Council. His ancestors have fished these waters just like he does now for thousands of years. One out of every 10 Lummi Tribal members has a fishing license, and the Lummi Tribal fishery is worth $15 million annually. The tribe is worried that their shellfish, salmon, and halibut fishery will be harmed by the coal dust and vessel traffic that will come if the Gateway Pacific Terminal is built. So now we're entering the proposed area for the coal port. As you can see, the buoys start. Dozens upon dozens of crab pot buoys dot the water around us, like a brightly colored obstacle course as we approach Cherry Point. See buoys up there. Tankers that service the nearby refinery rip up lummy crab pots on a regular basis. If the Gateway Pacific Terminal is built, it could draw more than 450 ships per year to take the coal to Asia. Those ships would travel through this area of Cherry Point. What does that mean to our treaty right to fish? This will be no more. That treaty right to fish could play a major role in the review process for the Gateway Pacific Terminal and the two other coal terminals under consideration in the Northwest. In the mid-1800s, tribes in this region signed treaties with the federal government, ceding millions of acres of their land. Native American populations plummeted, and the survivors were relegated to reservations. But the tribal leaders of the time did a very smart thing, says Tim Brewer. He's a lawyer with the Tulalip tribe. What they insisted on was reserving the right to continue to fish in their usual and accustomed fishing areas, 
extremely important part of the treaty. Those treaty rights weren't enforced in Washington until a momentous court decision in the 1970s, known as the Bolt Decision. It forced the state to follow up on the treaty promise of fishing rights that were made to the tribes more than a century before. Brewer says the phrase usual and accustomed fishing areas has implications for development projects, like coal terminals. If a project is going to impair access to a fishing ground and that impairment is significant, that project cannot move forward without violating the treaty right. And in recent decades, tribes have flexed those treaty muscles. The Lummi stopped a fish farm that was planned for the waters off of Lummi Island in the mid-90s. The tribe argued that constructing the floating net pens would block tribal access to their usual and accustomed fishing grounds. And in that case, the Corps of Engineers denied that permit on that basis. There was no agreement that was able to be worked out there. But in other situations, agreements have been made. Um, my name is Dwight Jones. We're at Elliott Bay Marina. Jones is the general manager of the marina. Behind him, hundreds of motorboats and yachts nestle into protected berths. Seattle's Space Needle pierces the downtown skyline in the distance. Elliott Bay Marina is the largest privately owned and operated marina on the West Coast. We have about 1,250 slips. The marina was built in 1991, after a decade of environmental review and haggling with the Muckleshoot tribe. The marina is within the tribe's treaty fishing area. It was contentious, I guess would be the right word. Could they have stopped this project from being built? Oh, ab absolutely. Absolutely, they could have stopped it. But they didn't. Instead, the tribe negotiated a settlement. The owners of Elliott Bay Marina paid the Muckleshoot more than a million dollars up front. And for the next hundred years, they'll give the tribe 8% of their gross annual revenue. The Muckleshoot tribe did not respond to requests for an interview. Anybody in business uh, can tell you that 8% of your gross revenues is a huge number. It really affects your viability as a business. So, What would you say to, to companies that are trying to build a coal terminal? <laughs> I'd say good luck. Uh, it's a long road and there will be a lot of costs and the chances are that the tribes will make it will probably negotiate a settlement that works well for them and it will be not be cheap. But will the Lummi follow the example of the Muckleshoot when it comes to the coal terminal proposed in their treaty fishing area? SSA Marine and Pacific International Terminals, the companies that want to build the terminal at Cherry Point, have lawyers and staff members working to make a deal with the Lummi to get the terminal built. From his offices at Lummi Tribal Headquarters, Jay Julius laughs when I ask him how he feels about SSA Marine's efforts to make inroads with the tribe. I say they're funny, but I think they're quite disgusting. The way they're trying to infiltrate our nation, contaminate it, use people. It's nothing new. SSA Marine declined repeated requests to be interviewed for this story. Julius and the Lummi Tribal Council wrote a letter to the Army Corps of Engineers this past summer. The Army Corps will have final say over the key permits for the coal terminal. In the letter, the Lummi assert their, quote, unconditional and unequivocal opposition to the Gateway Pacific Terminal. The letter lays out the tribe's reasoning behind their position, which centers around threats to treaty fishing rights and the tribe's cultural and spiritual heritage at Cherry Point. But there's an interesting line at the end of the letter. It reads, These comments in no way waive any future opportunity to participate in government-to-government -government consultation regarding the proposed projects. So despite the fact that the Lummi could possess the legal power to prevent the Gateway Pacific Terminal from being built, for now anyway, the door appears to remain open for negotiation. I'm Ashley Ahern in Bellingham, Washington. Ashley reports for Public Media's EarthFix.
Salmon are iconic in the Pacific Northwest, feeding people, bears, eagles, all manner of creatures, and even the forest itself when these fish return from the ocean. Earlier this fall, writer Mark Seth Lender was at Nimmo Bay in British Columbia for the end of the spawning season to see firsthand the fundamental role of the salmon and the price it pays. From the deeps of the ocean rising, skirting islands and mud bars, on into currents that twin and divide, then racing the ragged coastline. Their shadows lead them, the sun behind, each one single-minded. They swim without respite toward one place only, the one they must find. Entering a wide bay blessed by many rivers, they press against the outflowing of the tide. They seek by taste as water blends brackish to sweet and by the way the river courses. Each bend a marker, every rock a signature and a signpost. By length of day, between boulders and through rapids, they find their way. Led by magnetic north, clear and simple as a map inked by hand, driven onward, laddering falls, landslides made of water. Upstream, always salmon returning to the places they were born. Salmon remembers. Every pool, its light, the depth, the way the eddies flow. The texture, how ripples bounce between the shores, crossing and recrossing, a vibration felt in the thin lines scribed along their sides. Each pattern is unique, a moiré for all the senses, even the odor, cedar and spruce, and the indefinable sweetness from the peat of the forest floor is known. And all this salmon owns. Orker will harry them, Seal and sea lion greet them one by one in a tooth-filled underwater grin. Some will weaken, tangle in the kelp and drown there, as even a fish without strength to swim will drown. On the rise of the rain-fed stream, by flood tide and ebb tide, by water piled high by wind, some will break free and be on their final way. Others will be stranded. They will struggle and flail so that crows and eagles will find them. And curious at the mystery of their return, with beak and talon divine their entrails and cast their bones. Grizzly bear and black bear will find them leaping. Timber wolf will play them as they climb. Great paws deft as an angler's lure, great maw sure as a net of unbreakable twine. Some survive, their milt and row co-mingling the seed of generations that will follow them. Having found what they came for, now begins the great unraveling. On the emptying of the tide, clots of thick white foam float down and where the river joins the bay meld onto the surface, churning and turning in the flow. Having fed along the way all the great ones, of ocean and of stream, of forest and of air, all their promises fulfilled, the final essence of salmon returns to the sea. There are some of Mark Seth Lender's photographs at our website, LOE.org. 
Coming up, remembering an iconic environmental battle, Love Canal, 35 years on. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thirty-five years ago, a charmingly named community in Niagara Falls, New York, became synonymous with environmental disaster. Love Canal was a 36-block neighborhood built directly on top of 21,000 tons of toxic waste dumped there by the Hooker Chemical Company. Two schools were built on the site, and families experienced the effects of this toxic stew first, and they started to hold angry meetings. I carried the child for nine months. The baby weighed three pounds and was still born birth. Our little Julie was still born. The loss of our child may be a direct result to the chemicals. Please don't allow this to happen to anyone else before you get them out. Don't let it happen to yourselves. You are murderers. Each and every one of you in this room are murderers. They all wanted to get out, and they wanted answers. One of the principal organizers was a young housewife named Lois Gibbs. As head of the Love Canal Homeowners Association, she researched the history of the toxic dump, rallied the protests, and demanded state and federal action. At one point in 1978, when EPA officials visited the community, Lois Gibbs led the activists that refused to let the officials leave until the federal government promised to relocate the families. Just pass the word around. Nobody, we're not going to do anything violent. We're just going to keep them in the house. Nothing more than that. Body barricade the doors. Okay? Okay, pass the word. And don't let them out. Nobody else. They're all coming out. Come guys. Sit. <laughs> If I was to let the, re the two EPA representatives come out the store, does anybody know what would happen to them? I guess I'm here for the duration. Meaning what? The, the uh, duration? Well, I guess until the White House um, gives the homeowners some sort of answer. President Jimmy Carter did finally declare a public health emergency and order the residents relocated and call for federal funds to clean the site up. The whole question of the disposal of hazardous waste, especially toxic chemicals, is going to be one of the great environmental challenges of the 1980s. There must never be, in our country, another Love Canal. Thank you very much. That audio comes to us from the documentary film A Fierce Green Fire. Thirty-five years on, much of Love Canal is abandoned, but the battle helped launch CERCLA, the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, better known as the Superfund Act. And it launched the environmental career of Lois Gibbs, who came by the studio recently to recall how she felt when she started to understand what was going on in her neighborhood. Well, at first I didn't do anything but cry, because that's usually what you do when you don't know what to do. And then I got angry because I went to the school board and said, move my child from the school. It's on a dump. He's sick. And the school board said, if we move Michael Gibbs from the school, we have to move all 407 children. We're not about to do that because of one irate, hysterical housewife. And I'm thinking, like, 
it's all right to be irate and hysterical when somebody's holding a gun to your child's head. We had chemicals in our house, in our air, in our backyard, in our school, everywhere. And they said that they were going to do nothing. So I began by putting together a petition to circulate around the neighborhood to close the school. You know, you, you wouldn't think that you would need to do that when you have a school on a dump and children are sick, that someone might come and close the school and move the children. But it didn't happen. By the way, what were the chemicals that were in there that you found out about? Some of them were chemical warfare products that they were making back in the 40s and the 50s. Parts of the Manhattan Project was there, so you had radioactive waste. And then you had over 200 chemicals that came from the chemical factories in downtown Niagara Falls, which were pesticides, solvents, things like you find in the gasoline stations. I mean, it was just nasty stuff. And some of those chemicals actually came up to the surface because Mother Earth is a very special thing and she keeps pushing out these bad things. And so we had lindane, which is a pesticide that's been banned in this country since the 70s, on the surface, 100% pure. And this is on the surface of the playground where my child and 800 other families' children played every single day. So you started circulating a petition to close the school down, and what happened then? Well, then the state came in, the state of New York came in, did some testing, and they found the houses that had chemicals that were above a workplace standard. So that's for an adult male, 140 pounds, 40 hours a week. And based on that, and based on some health studies they did, they determined that it was safer to move pregnant women and children under two. So this was August of 1978. And we were just stunned. You know, the, our children, our babies, are canaries in the mind. And to remove the canaries does not remove the poisoning. and does not protect the children. So we became very angry because we realized if that's what they felt, then it had to be a whole lot worse. And so we began organizing, and we got people involved, and we did our own health study. And it was amazing. We found 56% of our children were born with birth defects, 56% with three ears, double rows of teeth, extra fingers, extra toes, mentally retarded. It was just awful. House after house would just tell us these horrible diseases. And when we presented it to the state health department and said, look what we found, they said it was useless housewife data collected by people with a vested interest in the outcome. And I'm always amazed because now I've been doing this for 35 years that it wasn't, you know, when industry releases a report, you know, BP, Exxon, whatever industry, their reports are always scientifically valid and almost gospel, if you will. And ours is just useless housewife data with vested. How come they don't have a vested interest when their BP is looking at the oil spill? Nobody said anything like that to them. And so I got angry again because now it became a, a matter of life and death and principle. And so we forced them to do their own study. And guess what? They found exactly the same thing. In fact, the gentleman came up to me and said, you'll be so surprised, Lois. We found the same thing you found. It's like, well, what did you think? We were making it up? I mean, my goodness. And when they found that, then they agreed to move entire families in the first two rows of homes. That's 239 families. And pregnant women and children under two in the outer community. This is uh, the fall of 1978, and uh, it's time for kids to go back to school. Well, except for they couldn't go to that school. We did close that school, and not only did we close that school, 
we closed the second school, which was at the northern end of our community, 93rd Street School, and our children were bused to another school. So imagine for a moment that you're told not to go in your basement, you're told not to go in your yard, you're told not to plant a garden, and you're told that none of your children can go to school in the neighborhood because it's unsafe, but somehow it's perfectly safe for you to live there and bring those children home every evening after school. It's just insane. So we continued to organize, we continued to fight back. By May of 1980, we won relocation of all families who wished to leave temporarily. And then October of 1980, President Carter uh, signed an appropriation bill that allowed all 900 families to leave. At one point, uh, some of the folks who were organizing with you held some EPA uh, officials uh Some say kidnapped them hostage (laughs) against their will. Yeah, I say we detained them for their own protection. This was in May of 1980. That's actually what got us the relocation. EPA had come down and told us all the things we couldn't do, which I just mentioned, and then said we had chromosome breakage. And chromosome breakage means that we have a higher risk of cancer, birth defects, and miscarriages. But the thing that really broke the the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back was when they said it's not just about the adults in the community. These chromosome breakages could be in your children, and people just panicked. And they all came to this front lawn of the abandoned house where we had our offices, and they're all looking at me. It's like, oh, Lois, what are we going to do? And I'm thinking, like, my goodness, I'm going to be a target here because people are so angry. So I called the EPA representatives over to the house to explain to the larger group, what does this mean? And when they got there, people said, you know what, if it's so darn safe for us, it can be safe for you. And we're going to hold you in this house until President Carter does the right thing. So they were in the house and 500 people literally encircled the house and sat down so they couldn't get out. But after a while, it got really rowdy out there. People were feeding off of one another, and they were getting angry. The FBI said they're going to come in, and they're going to take the hostages from us if we don't let them go. So we gave the White House. We let them go. We kept them for five hours. Um, And then we let them go, and we gave the White House an ultimatum. They had Wednesday until noon to evacuate us or the hostage holding, as it was coined, would look like a Sesame Street picnic to what we would do Wednesday at noon. We had no plan for Wednesday at noon. We had no clue what was going to happen Wednesday at noon. But I didn't go to jail. And in fact, one of my hostages sent me a telegram, which young people today may not even know what that is, but sent me a telegram that said, I hope you win everything you guys are fighting for. Thank you for the oatmeal cookies. You're happy hostage, Frank. And what he knew and I didn't know was that telegram was going to be, if I went to jail, would be used to say he wasn't harmed at all or, you know, stressed in some sort of way. So I was very thankful to Frank. So President Carter issues the order. All families are evacuated. Where do you go? Well, I moved to Virginia to buy a house there and set up a new organization to meet the needs of people just like me, the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice. And I did that because hundreds of people 
called me and said, I think I have one of those. Woolburn, Massachusetts, um, people in North Carolina, people in Texas who were telling me they had these children that were born without their brains or their brains were born outside of their skull. I mean, it was scary stuff. And I said, you know, there's, there's a lot of really, I think, extraordinary environmental groups out there, but none of them were prepared to deal with communities. They could deal with squirrels and bugs and birds and flowers and trees, but they had no clue what to do with people. And so we we set up the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice in order to help other people. So you had a victory in getting folks evacuated from Love Canal, but this must have come at a fairly high cost to yourself. It did. You know, I had to move to D.C., which is away from my family. I'm a very family-oriented person. My husband and I ended up getting divorced. He was a chemical operator and a chemical worker. He was incredibly supportive. But after Love Canal, he wanted me to come back home and be a full-time homemaker again, and I just couldn't do that. So you were very successful with uh, assertive community organizing, (laughs) demonstrations, and all that. That's so 70s. We need to go back to the 70s. You know, in today's world, everybody's so afraid to take risk. It's like, come on, guys, what possibly could go wrong? Especially when you're 23, you could make a couple mistakes and it would be okay. You know, the way that politicians react is when there is public voices saying, we want you to behave differently. We've seen this. You look at Governor Cuomo. Governor Cuomo wants to frack all of New York. He would love to frack tomorrow. But there are huge voices across the state of New York saying, no, you can't do this to our water, you can't do this to our land, you can't do this to our food. That is how we win. What are your largest concerns about uh, human health and chemical exposure these days? You know, I'm really frightened. All the science that is coming out is really talking about us being pre-polluted is the term they often use. But the chemicals that my mother had transferred to me, the chemicals I had transferred to my daughter, and she has two grandchildren. I have two grandchildren. She has two children. And so her chemicals transferred to her children. And our bodies are just so contaminated now. And when you look at some of the increase in disease, you're saying, oh, my goodness, you know, how do we turn this back? So, for example, vinyl flooring, there was a study that just came out about vinyl flooring and asthma because vinyl flooring off-gasses, it evaporates chemicals into the air. And they're talking about potentially it being associated with autism. Sort of makes sense when you think about a small child is laying on a blanket on the floor, a vinyl floor, and then that child is crawling around on that vinyl floor, putting his or her fingers in her mouth and just collecting all these chemicals into their bodies. And that's very frightening. It's like we have to stop doing that. And we have to at least let the consumers know what's in the product. Right now there are 80,000 chemicals on the market and we have little clue about what chemicals cause what disease. I'm sure there's a lot of very safe chemicals out there, but I couldn't tell you that, nor can the Environmental Protection Agency or the Food and Drug Administration. You say the government couldn't tell us about it? Why? Because they've never tested them. You know, a lot of people know about asbestos has been taken out of our schools and our building. When you buy a home, somebody's always checking for asbestos. You know, asbestos, they tried to get it banned in this country, and the chemical industry stopped it. 
Now, how could you do that? We know about asbestos. We know it causes lung cancer. My goodness, they can't stop it. They don't have the tools in the toolbox to stop it. And now there is some conversation about a reform, a chemical policy reform bill on the Hill, and what would that look like? And the reason that bill is on the Hill, I might add, is because of the wonderful, fabulous work of community groups across this country. So in Washington state, there are a bunch of chemicals that cannot be in products in that state. California just passed a fire retardant law for mattresses and different sort of furniture. Maine has passed a number of laws. Michigan's have passed this law. Massachusetts passed laws. And so here you have all these states that are saying, you know, the federal government isn't going to protect our citizens. We'll protect them. And so the industry is going a little bit crazy saying, if I have a mattress, I can sell this one here and that one there and this one here. And it's just too hard. And when this gentleman told me this, I'm like, well, I have an idea. Why don't you make them all safe? And then it won't be a problem. It's kind of a no-brainer here. (laughs) But it's true. I mean, there's just like all this. So as a result of all this groundwork being done, there's now industries coming to the table at the national level saying, okay, we need chemical policy reform. We need labeling. We need banning. But we don't want to ban as many as you do. And I keep saying, let's keep passing those bills at the local level, at the state level, and keep the heat on the industry. So back in 1978, you spoke up at first really just to protect your own child. And of course, it grew from there. So your child's all grown up now. How did it turn out? My daughter almost died of a rare blood disease, but she did recover from that. Uh, Michael is healthy. Melissa, as I said, gave me two beautiful grandchildren who are perfectly healthy. And I've had two children since Love Canal. And so it turned out well. I think we were lucky or blessed to be able to survive that. We're stepping into the season of gratitude and gift giving and all that sort of thing. What are you grateful for, Lois Gibbs, after telling America about Love Canal. I think what I'm grateful for is I have my health and my children's health and that over the last 35 years, we've made a difference. We really have made a difference. We've passed laws. We've helped people. I mean, I go to bed at night and say, if I was to pass this evening, I wouldn't regret anything. That's a really good place to be. Well, I want to thank you for coming by. Lois Gibbs, who 35 years ago started the protest at Love Canal. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Catherine Rodway, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of the nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgard, and others at thenation.com. 
This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.